Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, if you notice in the handout, the title of the the uh, message tonight is um, Injustice, Hypocrisy, and Corruption. And so as we have gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've, we've kind of um, focused on alternating between the very positive things he has to say about living and life and being happy, um, and then we alternate that with some of the more negative and depressing things that he has to say about life, such as what is the point? Life is completely meaningless. And so tonight's area, injustice, hypocrisy, and corruption. So how do we think about um, and live you know, the, the happy life, because that's what Solomon's intention in the book of Ecclesiastes is, how to approach life to find happiness. And so tonight, we're going to look, how do we think about and how do we live happily when we observe and experience injustice, hypocrisy, and corruption? So there are three areas that tonight's two texts address. Um, the first area is law enforcement and the courts. The second one is churches, churches or temples or any religious institution. And then the last one is, is governments. And so the text says, when you see wickedness um, in places of justice, and so that's your law enforcement, that's your courts. And when you see wickedness in places of righteousness, that's your temple, that's your church. Uh, and then the second, the third, the second passage um, says, you know, when you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice in the land, uh, know that there is a... Um, vast bureaucracy that creates it. And it's basically referring to cronyism. And so you have a, a, this, this government structure where the, the, the leaders and the rulers are all just feeding each other and it kind of destroys the country. And so those are the three, circumstance, three circumstances that the text is addressing. Now, so we've seen, you know, the, these kinds of circumstances are not new. So just over the last few years, if we think about, okay, where have we seen wickedness in law enforcement and the courts? Okay, so uh, certainly the circumstances around the murder of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, all the things that were exposed in the Minneapolis Police Department, okay? That's, I mean, we've all observed this. Uh, churches, you know, for well over a decade now, the, the Catholic Church has been roiled with, um, two decades, with all of these, these findings of, of sexual abuse of minors, and not just that the, there were perpetrations, but it was, it was covering, the leaders were covering it up, and this is not just the, the Roman Catholic Church, this has also been the Southern Baptists, it, it, it's been found that there's extensive... Um, abuse that has happened over the, the decades as well with that. And that's just, those are two large denominations with thousands and thousands of churches. This is occurring not just in those two institutions. Um, if you listen to the, to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church, it focused on Mars Hill Church and just what happens to churches and to leaders when celebrity and money and power and these things occur. And, but it wasn't just about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. It was about this, this uh, larger problem of high-profile church leaders that, that fall for whatever reason, immorality or abuse of power or, or a financial impropriety. And then finally, the government. I mean, you know, uh, yesterday, uh, the, uh, the, uh, 
the special counsel and the, the, the court system involved in the indictment of former President Trump. They, they've, he's got 80 felony indictments now. The New York Times is keeping track. There's three different cases. There are 80 indictments. And then also, though, at the same time, uh, there's increased pressure on President Biden because there's now information and evidence of him being involved in some of his son's business dealings and, and him having uh, a role in, in influencing some of these, whereas before he denied ever having any sort of communication with them. So anyway, we see injustice and wickedness and evil in these institutions that are supposed to be for the benefit of the people, right? Churches, government, law enforcement. And so our typical response at these, and so I want you to think about what, what did you think or say or do when all that stuff was erupting around George Floyd and, and Derek Chauvin? How do you talk about Trump or Biden um, or any of our other government leaders and representatives. I, I have confessed to my family. I think I have confessed to my house church. If I haven't done it publicly, I needed to. I have said things that I should not have said in arrogant judgment of city leaders of Minneapolis, my city council members and our state of Minnesota leaders, um, you know, because our typical reactions are our amazement that these kinds of things could happen. How could these kinds of things happen? We, we ask ourselves, we're, we're outraged, we're, we're, we're judgmental, we're condemning. And at one level, it seems like these are appropriate responses because normally what we are observing in these types of, these types of, these expressions of wickedness are really outrageous moral failures. You know, so it, 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 at one level, it seems like appropriate responses, but, but we need to ask a couple questions and, we, and, and, and consider what the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is saying, because he actually says that that's not the way to approach it. So the two questions I think we should ask, have our reactions created any real difference? And two, are we happier? Because that's, that's Solomon's biggest concern. Are, are we happier because of our outrage and whatever responses or actions our outrage is supposed to create. And so if we look at the, the text, I'm going to kind of walk through some of the basic ideas in these passages that Solomon is um, explaining why there's a different way to approach these kinds of circumstances. So again, it's, it's inevitable that we're going to see um, wickedness in law enforcement in the courts. It's inevitable that we're going to see hypocrisy in the churches. It's inevitable that we're going to see corruption and cronyism in government. And so the preacher, the author says this, when he observed it, he withheld judgment. And he says in the second passage, do not be amazed when you see these things. Now, if we think about his, his he, he, he brings up this issue of judgment because a judgment needs to be made. And, that, and judgment seems to be his initial impulse because this is the subject matter that is first on his mind when he observes, specifically in the first passage, uh, wickedness in, in law enforcement in the courts and in the church. Judgment comes to his mind. It seems to be his initial emotional impulse. 
But then he says this, I said to my heart. So it's not just talking to himself. The text doesn't say, you know, he just was talking to himself. The text says he said to his heart. Now, when, he's, when, it, when the text says he's talking to his heart, he is talking to his feelings. So he feels this impulse of judgment and condemnation that he should have at these observances of wickedness. This, there's emotion stirring up. He's feeling angry. He's feeling judgment needs to come down. But he speaks to his heart. He speaks to his feelings. They were prompting him to react, but he resisted the impulse that his feelings were directing him to and engaged wisdom. And it gives us a little bit of a lesson here. If we just follow our emotional impulses and our feelings, we're not going to really be pursuing the path of wisdom. And for Solomon, that means we're not going to end up being happy. That's his big concern here. So we engage our mind. It's, the feelings are good because it tells us, hey, here is something that we need to be paying attention to and that we need to think through and eventually act on. It's not just feelings and then action. It's feelings, let's think, and then let's respond with some action. And what he tells his heart, so there's this impulse to judge, but what he tells his heart is that no God will judge. God will judge. I feel like judging, but I know that God is going to judge. So it is God, he says, that it is God who judges the righteous. It is God who judges the wicked. And so he recognizes that it's not for us to ultimately judge and condemn. God alone can do this. So why? Why is this a truth that satisfies his impulse and calms his feelings. Well, he says this. He says to his heart again, God is testing humanity that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So what is the test? What is the test? So again, when we observe these injustices, when we observe these evils and this wickedness, we are observing, and then we are evaluating, and then we are concluding, and then we are judging. But are we accurate? Are we accurate in our evaluation? Are we accurate in our conclusions? Are we accurate in our judgment? Because God's, God's testing us. Are we right in this impulse? We are all beasts, he says. That's the conclusion that we need to come to. Because what we th when we initially see these wicked deeds and this injustice, what we typically do, what our feelings are telling us, is that this person or this institution is more wicked than I am, and I have the right and authority to judge and condemn what I'm observing. And what Solomon is saying is that, listen... Yeah, you are observing wickedness and evil, but you are not in a position to judge because you are also wicked and evil. If you are in those positions of power and authority in those, in those institutions that are supposed to serve the public, who says you are going to be any different than them? All people are the same. We are but beasts. 
And so when we see these opportunities to judge and evaluate and condemn all these evils, we need to step back and, and think and recognize they are just acting like human beings act. I would probably do the same thing. Who am I to judge? Are we able then to accurately judge and condemn? And what Solomon is saying is no. No. And so these two truths are, are they're curbs to our emotional reactions. God will judge, and we're all beasts. If we have that perspective, what Solomon is saying is that you're going to be much happier. You're going to be much happier if you believe that God will judge and that all human beings, including yourself, are beasts, you're going to be a happier person. So I want to look at why that is the case. So if we don't hold these two truths, we're going to fail the test. We're going to fail the test because failing the test reveals two things. First of all, it's going to reveal that we are arrogant and self-righteous. That we are arrogant and self-righteous. If, if you don't believe that God is the only one that can judge, and if you don't believe that all human beings are beasts, including yourself, then what you're saying is that you are better, and you are able to stand in a place of judgment. We're above other human beings. We are more just. We are more righteous than those people that we're observing. We ultimately are, are, are putting ourselves in the place of God. And what happens then, so the, our, our pride and our arrogance and self-righteousness is going to be revealed. But what happens is that that's going to generate anger and bitterness in us because we will constantly be having expectations on everybody around us to perform to our particular ideals about what righteousness is and that is and people are never going to be able to match up and so you're going to constantly be and growing in anger and bitterness towards other people a great example of this, if you've seen uh, uh, the recent movie uh, with Tom Hanks called Otto, and there was another movie long ago on it, and I think there was a book, and it's a great example of this. Here's this man. He's a very disciplined and well-ordered man, and throughout the movie, he just makes this very clear and plain statement, people are idiots, except me, except me, and so he, he's grumpy. He's angry. He doesn't have any human connections with other people. And he's also got a point of, of suffering in his life. And I'm not going to say here because I'm probably spoiling it enough, but it's an important part of the movie. Um, and finally, this, this, some neighbors move in, and they basically bulldoze him with grace and kindness and love. And his, his crustiness is exposed, and his own beastliness is exposed. So one, if we don't acknowledge that God alone is able to judge, and that we, <laughs> if we don't acknowledge that, that we're all beasts, our arrogance and self-righteousness will be exposed, making us more and more angry and bitter and not happy. The second thing that it reveals is that we put we put too much faith in humanity and in ourselves. This is a, a collective 
self-righteousness. And so it's the same type of dynamic, but instead of just viewing ourselves as better than them, we've, we view like our collective, a collective, a group, a society, so that our systems and our laws and our structures, our science, our methods, our, our technology, we should be above what we're observing because we are so advanced. And so there's a collective outrage, there's collective judgment, there's collective condemnation, and this reflects arrogance on the part of a group. You know, when, when, you know, when there's a disaster and the response to the, to the disaster wasn't good enough, like think any of the natural disasters that FEMA has messed up over the last 20 years, okay, which is a federal government, or think of what happened with, with George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and then the, the, the riots and then all the police. You hear these statements, this shouldn't be happening in modern America. Minnesotans are better than this and wouldn't act this way. I remember Governor Wallace specifically saying, he just, I just never thought Minnesotans would do this. These can't be Minnesotans. The people of XYZ whatever deserve better. These are telltale statements of arrogance that says there are some of us that are better than others of us. And that's a violation of this ideal that all people are beasts. And so what, what we are seeing, you know, part of the consequence or the result of this, um, of our observing of our institutions, what we believe to be increasingly failing, is that there's a declining faith in these institutions. So the Gallup poll uh, has a survey every year, and there's 18 institutions that they are uh, Asking, you know, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people, how much faith do you have in this institution? And so it's, it's 18. And every year for a number of years, in every single institution, our faith and trust in these things has declined. Congress is at the bottom of the list at 8%. I think the top of the list... Um, I can't remember. Anyway, you can look it up. Just Gallup poll, faith in public institutions, faith in institutions. And so the question to ask is, is why is our faith and trust in these institutions declining? Are they any less credible? Are the people more evil now than they used to be? And that's, that's a possibility we know from Scripture that, you know, in Second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that in the last days, things are going to get worse. And so, yeah, there could be a declining faith in these institutions because of a declining quality of people that are serving in those institutions. But that still, it, if that's the case, then it's a declining culture of people, not just the specific people in those institutions. And complex societies eventually do crumble. They last maybe three or 400 years. But these things have been problems, I mean, it, it, for thousands of years. These kinds of dynamics that we persistently observe in every time and place and culture throughout history, these are always problems. I think we have to examine the possibility that, that the growing decline in trust in these important institutions might be, 
Okay, I haven't done any statistical evaluations, but I think that it might be because people have been more emotionally invested in them and thus would have a greater emotional reaction when they fail because of a declining belief and trust in God. See, faith in God, according to Solomon, has, it tempers our emotional reaction, which enables us to be more sober-minded about these institutions, which means we're not going to put as much faith in them as we do, so we're not going to be as disappointed, but we're also more able to sober-mindedly work with them because they're good. They're good things. They're good insti- These are important institutions, many of which have been created by God. God ordained governments. They're not perfect, but God created government for the care of people. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. But our faith can't be in these things. Our faith has to be in God himself. And I think that maybe our reactions are growing stronger because we are no longer trusting God to be at work through these or in the people that are in them. And we can't approach them sober-mindedly. So we just have really, we're just kind of in, on, the, on the far ends of the continuum. We trust them too much, and when they let us down, we, want it, we judge them too much. Solomon's conclusion. God will judge. We're all beasts. And then he says at the end of the passage, I have found nothing better than this. This is his solution. There is no better way to approach these kinds of things than to be happy in your work and to go enjoy your food and your drink. Like, really, Solomon? These serious of things? Yeah. Go enjoy your work. Enjoy your food and drink. Don't be amazed at what you see. These things have happened in the past. They're happening now. They're going to continue to happen into the future. So these two beliefs enable us. God is going to judge and we're all beasts. These are actually two beliefs that enable us to live more happily. And these are two important gospel principles. Now, usually we don't think of these as very positive, happy feeling, creating ideas. God is going to judge every human being on the face of the planet, and every human being on the face of the planet is a beast. Oh, how happy that makes me feel. But that's, so I'm going to talk in the conclusion of our time here, I'm going to explain why these are actually happy generating ideas. So the first one, humanity's common beastliness. So if we believe that, that eliminates distinctions between people. It eliminates distinctions regardless of what we think we can set people apart with, race, color, class, money, where they live, where they're from, whatever. If we believe in humanity's common beastliness, it eliminates all of those distinctions. It eliminates judgment and self-righteousness. And it generates humility, compassion, generosity, and understanding. Because if you believe that you are just as bad or maybe even worse than the next person. You're going to want people to think of you kindly, and you're going to be kind to others because you are seeing that we are all in a pretty bad spot, and compassion and humility and generosity and kindness 
tends to come out of perspectives where you, you're not thinking that you're better than somebody else. By comparing and creating distinctions, we, we, we generally have two options. We think lesser of ourselves than we should, which generates self-loathing, despair, depression, all these negative mental health issues. So we don't have to think less of ourselves. And we can't think too much of ourselves. That's the other continuum that we tend to go to. I'm better than, which is a pride and arrogance. And you need to continue to, to do things in your life that sets yourself apart from others. And that just becomes exhausting because eventually we see our failures and our weaknesses. And eventually we, we, and we know internally, yeah, I'm a beast too. I got to stop working at showing how I am so distinct from other people. So that's, I think that that's how this idea that we're all beasts makes us happy. It eliminates self-loathing, it eliminates arrogance and pride, and we see everybody as equal. Second, God will judge. And so yes, in just, why does this make us happy? Why does God's judgment, why should it bring happiness to us? First of all, it is a confident belief and realized hope that injustice, oppression, corruption will eventually end and God will end it. This isn't going to continue on forever. God is going to end it. Until then, though, we can work at justice. See, we're, we're called to be people that work towards justice. Justice is the restoration of things to bring them back to a place of righteousness and goodness. But our work at justice has to be tempered by these two truths. We're all beasts. God will ultimately judge. That gives us a place of humility and compassion in dealing with people who are fellow beasts. And we will be effective because we'll be kind. Otherwise, our arrogance and our fervor, which we've seen over the last years just erupting and overflowing, our arrogance and our fervor will result in oppression of the people that we're judging for being oppressive. It's just going to be reversed oppression. And this is the, I mean, I, I usually don't like to give any sort of, <clears throat> make any sort of references with the Lord of the Rings because every, all pastors do. But if you remember, if you remember the one ring, both uh, Gandalf, the Lady Galadriel, and Frodo all declined from keeping it because they knew that if they had the power to be as powerful as it would be needed to destroy Sauron and, and bring everything to... They knew that if they had that power that they would be forces of corruption and arrogance and destruction and oppression. And they said, no, I don't want it. That's, we have to keep ourselves humble. God will judge. God will bring this all to the end. And ultimately, these two truths, we're all beasts, God will judge, the ultimate comfort and happiness comes together in these ideas in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 is a basically a, a, 
a New Testament way of saying we are all beasts. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's, Roman, that's the last half of Romans chapter 3, or the middle third. But right then, after that's the first idea, we're all beasts, it's, a, it's an important part of the gospel. Then right after that, verse 19, God is going to judge. So know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We're all beasts, God will judge. And this comes together in the gospel, which if you're just, you can continue to read uh, Romans chapter 3. The text goes on. Through the gospel, God does two things. He makes us righteous. He, he transfers, uh, transforms us from being beasts into the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself. By faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how does that happen? Well, we deserved wrath. We deserved judgment. Why? Because God has a mission to eliminate evil, and we're all evil. And if God is just, he has to eliminate evil. So God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place because the ultimate judgment for our evil is death. And so Jesus took death for us. The theologians call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus was the substitute for us, he took our wrath. We took his righteousness. Because that's the gospel. So God makes us righteous. We're no longer beasts. We're saved from his wrath. And so we can look forward. We can look forward to God's judgment because we acknowledge that we are beasts and need the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. And given that salvation in Jesus Christ, I have now become righteous. I am now saved from the wrath of God. And I know that God will usher in a new kingdom and a new earth and bring peace and kindness as the dominant force in love and patience and peace, and evil will be eliminated. So again, these things are happy, generating truths and ideas. Let me pray.